Hi, this is Warwick Fairfax, author of Crucible Leadership, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Warwick Fairfax. Warwick is the founder of Crucible Leadership, a philosophical, practical breakthrough in turning business and personal failures into the fuel for igniting a life of significance. Fairfax was only 26 when, as the fifth-generation heir to a media empire bearing his family name, he led and lost a multi-billion-dollar public takeover bid. The company founded by his great-grandfather slipped from family control after 150 years, leaving him to examine not only his shortcomings and losses, but also his life's principles and the lessons he learned from family members who came before him and some of history's greatest leaders. It's by shaping these insights as a leadership advisor that Fairfax has enabled others to learn from what he describes as their own crucible experiences and emerge to lead a life rooted in who they are. Fairfax holds an undergraduate degree in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford University and earned his MBA from Harvard Business School. Warwick lives in Annapolis, Maryland with his wife, Gail, and three children. He's here to talk about his book, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. Welcome, Warwick. Great to be here, Bill. It's great to have you. Could you just start off and help define what is a leadership crucible. Leaders are leading their companies day in and day out, but they may not necessarily find themselves or recognize the crucible as you've defined it. A crucible is a life-transforming moment. Literally, a crucible means like a cauldron of hot molten metal. With the crucible, it's something typically so painful that the person you are now is fundamentally different than the person you were before. By way of example, we've had maybe 75, 80 guests on our own podcast, Beyond the Crucible. We've had people who suffered physical tragedy, quadriplegics, paraplegics, victims of abuse, financial failure, and who they are now is fundamentally different. Crucible is incredibly painful, but coming out of a crucible, you have a choice to either let it destroy you or let it maybe mold you and maybe make you stronger and have a a life-affirming purpose. It's incredibly painful, but it presents a binary choice. Let this destroy me or let this make me stronger and fill me with a greater purpose. It's a binary choice coming out of a crucible. Yes, because we can't control what happens to us in life. And growing up, we could have terrible experiences. And yet it's what we choose to do about what happens. What do we do as a result of what happens? What do we make of what precipitated what we learned through going through that experience really allows us to have a unique perspective. In your book, you talk about facing a, a terribly difficult position where you inherited so much responsibility suddenly due to your father's passing. In 1987, you were named the head of not just a single company, but of a media conglomerate, which included the biggest newspapers in Australia, the Sydney Morning Journal, the Age in Melbourne, the Australian Financial Review, with several TV stations, radio stations, and even newsprint mills. It was part of that whole supply chain. It was one of the largest diversified media companies in Australia. In the book, you say that you were heir apparent from the day you were born, you were being groomed for that in some respects, yet there was probably nothing that could have adequately prepared you for sitting behind that desk, not the education and not the two and a half decades of the conversations, observations, and celebrations. When you heard the news, what were some of your first thoughts before you even got 
to taking on that responsibility. Growing up in a 150-year-old family media business, it was, as you said, it had this iconic asset, Sydney Morning Herald, The Age in Melbourne, Financial Review, like the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times of the U.S. It felt a bit like, it's going to seem a bit strange, but like growing up in the royal family. To say that like Prince William these days, you think he want to bow out, it would just devastate his dad and uh, grandmother and look the challenges that Harry has had trying to get out of the family business. It was January of 87, and you were midway through your second year of Harvard Business School. Yes. Were you expecting, was your father in poor health? Was it a complete surprise? What were the circumstances that the day you found out that he had passed, and then the implication also became apparent that you would then be stepping into that role? Yeah, he was in his late 80s at the time. I was from his third marriage. He had cancer the last six months. Obviously, when you're in your late 80s, you feel like the end may come at some point. My whole life, I had tried to prepare myself for a future role at Oxford like he had and some other relatives, worked on Wall Street, got me MBA at Harvard Business School. None of it was, what do I want to do in life? It was all about, as they say in the US, military duty on a country. It was just that sense of, this is my duty. The issue of, do I want to do it, was a completely irrelevant question. When he died, it precipitated some things. There'd been some infighting amongst different family members, which is common, sadly, in family businesses. The market felt the company was in play because... About 50% was publicly held. The stock price rocketed up. I and my parents felt the company wasn't being well-managed and run along the ideals of the founder. All that precipitated this sense of, if I don't do something, something bad's going to happen. Either corporate raiders will step in, management will continue to make poor decisions, at least from my youthful estimations. All that led to, in late August 87, me making this $2.25 billion take-up. And whether it was really warranted and whether it was smart was a whole nother quest I talk about in my book. But it was this sense of once he died, my dad in early 87, I felt like I had no choice for a variety of reasons to do something. It was almost like this youthful, naive crusader. Something has to be done and I'm going to do it. Here we go. Sometimes All that pressure coming from the yeah. outside, but also inside the expectations Absolutely. expected that your family had, your parents and, and others. Did you have the, I'm going to call it luxury, and I hope that's not disrespectful, but the luxury of being able to spend a few more months finishing your year at Harvard before you came back to Australia? Or did you leave immediately? once you received the news? No, it was crazy. I finished my studies in May 87, something like that, and graduated. But what happened is during the day, I was doing classes and studying. And at night, I was on the phone to investment bankers and lawyers or whatever in Australia, lining right. up the takeover and figuring stuff out. It was like a corporate takeover by night studying by day. It was just the craziest existence during those months. As if you weren't spending long hours and late nights already finishing your second year of Harvard Business School. You had this additional responsibility with the time change. Exactly. Yeah. It's like 14 to 16 hour time difference, depending on the time of year with daylight saving. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a long way. Did you have other brothers or sisters who were advising you? What was the situation where your closest advisors who were back in Australia, were they men in their 50s and 60s? who you had very little relationship with, or were they close family members who were encouraging you based upon their perceptions and information they were getting? What was the scenario as you were doing these two more than full-time responsibilities? Did you actually have signature authority as of the day that your father passed? When he died, my mother and I inherited his block of shares, basically three blocks of shares adding up to 50%, which 
I led the family to have control of a public company. But yeah, I had an older half-brother in the business from my father's first marriage. I had a cousin who was involved. And so there were different blocks of shares, if you will. No, it felt like there were other family members in the business that maybe shared a different vision than I did of management. That was a part of the issue. Whether their perspective might have been accurate, but I grew up with a different perspective. Basically, what precipitated things was about 11 years before in 1976, the other major blocks of the family shareholding threw my father out as chairman. They had two out of three family blocks they could, and that was devastating to him. He was in his mid-70s at the time, in incredible health. I was 15 at the time. I just felt like a righteous man, falsely persecuted, and still to this day, it's hard for me to understand that event. Precipitated different factions within the family. But that was a bit of the backdrop to these other family holdings. I wasn't really looking for advice because they're the ones, from my perspective, stabbed my father in the back. You all look at history through your own lens, but that was the lens I looked at it from what they did to my dad 11 years before. Yeah, that was really fresh in your mind leading yeah. up to this whole situation. You really didn't have any family members who you were allied with, who you could trust, and you felt really had the same best interests that you did. You shared your vision the same way. Yeah, there were some other family members who weren't involved in the family business that maybe I could have chatted to, but I just had this, again, a lot of mistakes, obviously, this sense of secretiveness. I had my own advisors, but in large part, I did not choose well. There's a lot of stories to share about what not to do, but here's one classic case that listeners should learn from anybody that's a business owner, is that we had some merchant bankers, which is Australian speak for investment bankers, and they said, Mark, we've done the numbers and launching a takeover doesn't make sense. Now you're worried about corporate raiders, but the numbers don't add up. If there is a hostile takeover, get together with the family and fend it off. Being young, that wasn't the answer I wanted to hear, so I ignored the sage advice of the esteemed blue chip merchant bankers. I went with these advisors that had advised some of the biggest corporate raiders. This is the 80s, the era of the corporate raider. They were good at what they did, but their ethics were a bit different than the blue chip merchant bankers. They said for a fee, sure, we can make it happen. And whether it was going to be economically sustainable in the long run is a different point. Yeah, we can get you control. They told me what I wanted to hear. Let, let's go. Their philosophy being advisors to corporate raiders was different than the blue chip merchant bankers. I was listening to people that really told me what I wanted to hear. It's the classic case of what you should never do as a business owner. You don't want a yes men or yes women giving you advice. Understandably, you were very distant from the business. You weren't tied into it because of being in, in Boston rather than back in, in Sydney. You had an idea and you went with someone who validated that idea, even though their interests weren't aligned with yours. Here's the question I have for your work. If you could go back today with what you knew and talk to yourself, who was in the position of making those decisions, what are two or three things? things that you would share with your younger self back in the spring of 1987. I would say, firstly, don't do it. Don't launch the takeover. Don't <laughs> Take don't. a step back. But whether I would have listened, I was pretty stubborn back then. Probably still am, but at least I try to listen these days. The biggest mistake was not I could have done it differently or even not done it. It was that there was infighting in the family going back decades for a variety of reasons. My dad had made some mistakes with a cousin of his decades before in the 50s. There was a lot of 
friction. The question was, given the friction within the family, also, is this something I wanted to do? I'm by nature an executive coach, reflective advisor, writer, thinker. I don't like to be in charge of a 4,000-person, $700 million company as it was. I'm not somebody that likes to make 20 decisions before breakfast. I'm like, was this the right decision? Is it going to hurt somebody's feelings? If you're a CEO of a big company, you can't overanalyze everything. You've got to do what you think is right, cross-correct when necessary, but you can't ponder every decision endlessly. It was not my vision. It was a terrible fit, I guess, to my younger self. It would be A, don't do it. B, is this really your vision or John Fairfax's vision, your great-grandfather? It's a noble cause, but it's not your cause. Do something else. I don't think I would have listened. I just couldn't have listened. Sometimes you've got to go through pain to learn. Sometimes there's no easy way around. So I'm very skeptical that I would have listened, frankly. So that's that's really interesting. Even with your wisdom today, you don't think you could have convinced yourself to have taken a different path or even to just say, look, I'm going to be a passive shareholder, not an active director in the company. You could have hired somebody. I was just curious if you never even considered that. Yeah, obviously, before I did the takeover, I wasn't in control. Over time, I would have inherited my older half-brother's share. One day, I would have had an enough share to be in a leading position. That would have been decades later. But just to not be in the company, it would feel like I was letting my father down who felt betrayed 11 years before. I just would have felt like I'm not doing my duty. It literally is like the royal family. You feel like you're letting down a nation. The duty was and is a big thing for me. I couldn't have done it. I felt like I would be betraying my father and generations of my family. I I just couldn't have done it. It just may not be easy to understand, but the only way I could have got out is probably the way I did. I was forced out by circumstances when three years later in 1990, Australia got in a big recession and the company went bankrupt. Other people took over, the assets were sold, but uh, the only way I could have left that company was the way I did. The fact we had to file for bankruptcy is the only way I could have got now. In one sense, that's some people use the phrase severe mercy in some ways. It was a blessing, not that the company went under, but that I was forced out because it's the only way I would have left the way it happened. Joseph Campbell talks about the hero's journey. And he talks about is the importance of being presented with challenges like this and having advisors come in so that as you're under this pressure in this crucible, you can't come out of it transformed unless something else is added to the crucible, some additional insight, some additional self-awareness some additional resources so that you don't go in making the same level of problem solving and decision making as when you entered it. Another thing that comes out of his work that all of us, each of us, you and I, both as men, grow up with one of two charges. One is to either come about and overcome the mistakes that our fathers and grandfathers made before us. The second is to live up to the expectations they set. It sounds to me like you had pressures coming in from both living up to their expectations as well as correcting mistakes they made was just an enormous amount of pressure. That's a very insightful observation, Bill. That is profoundly true. We had generations of perhaps journalists. My dad would have been a better philosophy professor. He wrote books on comparative religion, and he was an incredibly brilliant, well-read man, loved history. He wasn't a business guy. By nature, I'm probably more of a writer than a business guy, to be honest. I inherited his genes. So I thought, okay, that's why after Oxford, I worked on Wall Street and Harvard Business School, because my dad didn't really have a solid understanding of business. 
I think I'm going to make sure I understand finance so that when management makes these harebrained capital raising recommendations as they did a few times that could have diluted family control, I'll be able to push back. That's you know what happens to the cap table when they start to offer more shares. Exactly. I definitely felt like I wanted to correct those mistakes. One of the other wrinkles is the founder of the company was a person of great Christian faith. That happened for me at an evangelical Anglican church at Oxford. There was that thread of faith, not too much in any overt sense, but more how people were treated. And there was a number of strands that made me want to bring the company back to the ideas of the founder, correct some of the lack of business knowledge of my dad. All of those things weaved into I don't think of myself as a hero, but that the hero's journey, as you as you put it, those two strands, trying to correct the past as well as live up to that legacy. Not everybody has both, but I think everyone who I've ever spoken with as a coach, as a business leader, as a speaker, I've always found that everyone can relate, especially men, relate to those two, either one, the other, or both. You had both in very large measure, plus all the, the scrutiny. You and I were talking a little bit about tennis before the interview began, and I've always thought that tennis and, and sports is one of the hardest, professional sports especially, one of the hardest endeavors along with performing arts because every mistake you make is written up. It's just magnified and is the subject of discussion and debate. You have people talking about the games the next day and from radio announcers and commentators to newspaper stories and bloggers. My goodness, now bloggers, everyone has an opinion as to how you should have done it. It's really what I keep coming back to is the poem, you've got to be the man in the arena. It's not for right. anyone. It's up to each of us to be that person in the reader who gives us all at the end of the day says that's enough. I've given all that I can, the best that I can. It's not the critic who counts. Yeah, I love that quote by Teddy Roosevelt, the man in the arena is quite something. I guess I was certainly in the midst of that. And there was a time in Australia where I could walk in a, in a mall and people would go, aren't you Warwick Fairfax that's seen me on TV? This is a lot of years ago in the late 80s. It was editorial cartoons done on me, which they never favorite. There was one of me dressed as a Mongol raider, like young Genghis Fairfax and his hordes of people that destroyed in a day what took over a hundred years to build. There was my least favorite one, which is how do you start a small business? Give Warwick Fairfax a big one. They were just vicious. The day the company filed for bankruptcy, I was married by then to my wife, who's American. We living in a small house in the suburbs of Sydney with three television networks camped on our door, the equivalent of ABC, NBC, CBS, the three major networks. It was just crazy. So yes, everything that happened has been written about and uh, how stupid I was. And a lot of it's true. I was pretty stupid somewhat. It didn't help at all that you had the perspective that some of what the media does as its mandate is you write things with headlines that sell newspapers and you have lead-ins to TV shows and news shows that get people to tune in. The expression, I think, in the United States probably held true in Australian media. If it bleeds, it leads. Absolutely. It's not so much that the press coverage was bad. Even our own newspapers, the Sydney Morning Herald, we always had this sense of editorial independence that may seem a little weird. In our own papers, they were vicious, but I wasn't going to censor them. I may not like what they wrote, but it's if they want to write bad stuff about me, that's there. And so I, I let that be. That's what I felt like was sensible. But it wasn't so much it was biased or unfair per se. It was my own failings and mistakes. I, I don't feel like it was inaccurate reporting. It was just, was it? did it feel like a little vicious? Yeah. Was it untrue? Not really. I did make those mistakes. It was tough, but I brought it on myself. At the time, I imagine that you felt very defensive and it was unfair. You have 30 years 
distance from it now. If you think about what things were like for people who are listening to this and who may come under scrutiny for making mistakes that they are responsible for, what perspective could you share that helps distance from going in and reacting and fighting against it and saying, oh, it's so unfair and feeling the victim to shifting out of that position and saying, what can I do about this? Everyone may make a different decision, but how do you get to that point of view, that headspace where you're saying, okay, this is happening. How do I want to respond to it? Bill, this is going to seem weird, but I didn't go through that phase of saying this is unfair. I never did. At the time, I feel like pretty much this is fair. I made colossal mistakes. The company has had a lot of debt. I wasn't mad at the media. I was more, well, mad at myself for getting in that situation. Even though you probably personally knew some of the people writing these stories. I made so many mistakes. We don't have time to get into them all, but because I was so shell-shocked and involved in refinancing, going back and forth to New York. Like there was one time where we met with some New York investment bankers, went back to Sydney. And then a day later, I got back on the plane to go back to New York because there was more stuff to do. I didn't manage by walking around. I didn't say hello to the journalists, Mm -hmm. the editors. I felt out of my depth. As soon as I got control, I talk about sometimes once we got control, I, I go into the building, into the elevator. And as I'm riding up to the sixth floor, there are employees and journalists there. I'm not saying a word to them. They're not saying anything to me. I'm 26 years old. I'm just petrified, feeling out of my depth. It was so uncomfortable. I knew the names of these journalists, but I didn't really know them because I never made a point of getting to know them because I was just out of my depth. I was in finance meetings and I brought in professional management that did make a big difference, increased operating profits 80%, but the debt was so high, it didn't matter. Yeah. I would have imagined that you would have heard stories your father told over the dinner table or at the parties that your mother used to throw that I'm sure editors and writers would come to them and try to rub elbows and curry favor with you as the the boss's son when you were younger. I'm surprised that you didn't have those types of contacts. Yeah, I knew some of them a bit, but our newspapers are a bit different. Politicians could try to curry favor with my dad, but we always believed in doing the right thing. Some media moguls in Australia would write, favorable articles about business leaders or politicians because they're a mate. We didn't have that concept. Even if my father might have been good friends of the one prime minister many decades before actually in World War II, he and his first wife would socialize with him. It was Sir Robert Menzies, probably the most famous long-serving prime minister. At one point in 41, the paper wrote an editorial saying that the labor leader was the right person to lead the country. Obviously, my dad's friend, the current prime minister, never forgave him and never talked to him for the rest of his life. But I mean, I like like you personally, but I think the other guy, the Labour Party leader, is a better for the country in time of war. It's a tough history. position to take, especially yeah. that Menzies came back into power a few years exactly, later. Exactly, exactly. Here he was complaining, and throughout like late 40s to early 60s, something like that, he was prime minister, but he never forgave my dad. He felt that was, he was you, don't lose, you don't lose an election because of an editorial. Rarely will that be the reason. There's typically deeper issues. In the United States, we have had some different experiences with that. Indeed. But yeah, so that was just always a sense of non partisan journalism. Let me ask you something else. When you're in that situation and the news cameras were camped out on your doorstep in your driveway uh, on the day that you lost control of the company. Rather than feeling anger, you say you skipped over the anger and feeling like a victim. I imagine you felt a great sense of relief. It wasn't your responsibility anymore. Is that some part of that true? Yeah, I felt, as I said, my wife's American. December 1990, we stopped in Los Angeles for a few days, get our bearings before heading east. I remember just walking around, I don't know, West LA somewhere, feeling this tremendous sense of relief. Like it 
it's over time, there was this sense of loss of, look what I've done to this 150-year-old company. I've caused friction in the family, wet my parents, caused instability for 4,000-plus employees. Many of them had jobs because those were assets at the time, pre-internet, that was still extremely valuable. But this sense of, look what I've done, I didn't mean to, but I've hurt all these people. And yes, I lost billions maybe, but money has never been that important to me. We were okay. We still had something. Amongst the sense of loss and look what I did, how could I have done this? There was a sense of relief that it's over. I can now do whatever I want to do with my life, which took me a long time. And the first step would be finding out what you wanted to do with your life. Right. For most people, they grew up thinking, gee, what do I want to do? Am I artistic? Am I mathematical? Do I like finance? Am I an entrepreneur? All those questions were irrelevant. While my classmates at Harvard Business School were interviewing for management consulting firms or investment banks, that was all irrelevant to me. It took me a long time to figure out what is it I enjoy? What am I good at? Because I was too shell-shocked. I wasn't clinically depressed, but I was just down. And it took me a while to start actively thinking, what is it I can do and not mess up? It was a long journey back. I forget you talked about the dark night of the soul, but it was a bit of that sense. It took me a long way back to find something, to find myself. Before we leave the Australian media story for a little bit, let me just ask you one thing that really fascinated me in reading your book is that you said that you had two principles that were very important to you and that you wanted to restore. One was that you were proud of the balance, as you referred to just earlier, in calling out the decisions and policies of the people who acted in the best interests of the country, as well as the politicians that were making bad decisions. And unlike many media in the United States that only go after the sensational stories or scandals. You were very proud of the fact that your media companies covered both sides and you offered that balance. You said you praised them where they did well. You saw that it was in alignment with the interests of the community. And the second thing you did is that you said that you wanted to continue the tradition or restore the tradition of being an employer where people wanted to come to work each day. Given that as a backdrop, what's your perspective on the media environment in which you live today in Maryland, in the United States in 2022? Do you see evidence of either or both of those in operation today in the media? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm reminded of the original masthead of the Sydney Morning Herald before even John Fairfax took it over in 1841 is may Whigs call me Tory and Tory call me Whig, which in modern language means may liberal call me conservative, may conservatives call me liberal. One could debate is it still holding that line? It depends how you look at it. But I think increasingly in the US and maybe around the world, the media has become polarized. So you've got your liberal papers and media outlets and your conservative outlets. And people would just go to where they feel their tribe, their calling. Now, I wouldn't say I'm an expert historian on newspapers in the U.S., but that's the way it used to be back in the time of Abraham Lincoln. I think it was probably the more Republican and the New York Times, maybe the more Democrat. I don't think he even tried to be nonpartisan. If you were an anti-Lincoln paper, you would just rip him apart. Forget fact. It was just a free-for-all back then. You could say the sense of polarization may be the norm. Maybe we had a few decades where people would at least attempt to try to be nonpartisan. We live in an area where it's very polarized. You just live in your bubble with your liberal friends, your conservative friends, reading your liberal papers and conservative papers and media. And no wonder society's polarized because all you'll hear is people supporting your own views, which is is terrible for the country as as is any country. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. It's not good for the country to be so polarized. How do you get compromise? 
when there's such polarization? The answer is you don't. I think that's one of the huge things that's lost. From your perspective, what are some of the valuable aspects in a modern society that are lost when it's not that you would have the Tories call you Whigs and the Whigs call you Tories? I don't think conservatives today read the liberal press, and I don't think liberals read the conservative press as much. You don't even get that feedback or what I would like to call course correction. I think that's one of the things that's lost. From your perspective, just in the last 10 years, what do you see that has been lost in terms of conversations, cross-pollinization of ideas by people becoming more isolated within their ideological bubbles? That's a good question. It's getting worse because, again, for anybody that follows politics and because I grew up in media, I follow it fairly closely. You have a special interest on the left and the right in that if a Republican or a Democrat tries to compromise, they'll be primary. They won't be their party's candidate for Senate or Congress or legislature, depending on whether you're looking at the state level or federal. And so the ability of politicians to compromise is tough. Politicians like to get reelected. They like to stay in power. That's what comes with the territory. It makes it hard to compromise. Where's the sensible center, whether it's on economics or social issues? It's hard to get there because if you try, you'll be primary. Now, in other countries, it's in Australia and Britain, it's a little bit different because you don't have primaries. You have party members select who the candidate is. It's not perfect, but you're a tad safer from getting primary. It's maybe a little easier to compromise. I wouldn't say massively so, maybe a tad. I'm all for democracy, but here you've got the whole primary system and special interests and money in politics. It makes it impossible. People bemoan decades ago, there were more liberal Republicans than Nelson Rockefellers of this time, or maybe the more conservative uh, Democrats. And the system is designed these days to not have those sorts of people, unfortunately. I, I don't think it's good, but I don't, I don't know there's any easy solution. I think it's interesting that people today don't like feeling uncomfortable, yet they have no problem using that ostracization and outside criticism to make others uncomfortable in order to change their beliefs or stop expressing them. It's if we've lost the ability to have civil conversations when there's a disagreement on issues. Exactly. You should be able to disagree in a civil way without throwing without throwing bombs. I think that's true in politics and true of the faith. I'm an elder at an evangelical church. I don't think it's helpful when people throw bombs and just say terrible things. I often find even in areas of faith, I may theologically agree with somebody I might see on TV, but I vehemently disagree with the spirit with which they share those ideas. I think that can be true in politics, and it's just so... It's so unhelpful, but it's it's rare to have those thinking, reasoned people that will listen to both sides. These days, they're viewed as a sellout, either on the Republican or Democratic side, if you even deign to, to talk to the other side. It's just very sad, and I'd love to be hopeful, but I'd be hard-pressed to think of a reason to be hopeful, because a lot of I understand why we are where we are. Let's get back to your day-to-day -day work as a leadership coach and advisor. What are some of the issues that people struggle with when they come to you to to work with your coaching services. One of the things, if tangentially related to what you're asking, is while I follow politics, you will not see me comment on social media or anywhere about my own personal political beliefs. And people know I have a faith background, obviously Christian faith, but even there, I'm very careful to say, this is my truth, my path, that everybody has the God-given right to choose their own philosophical and faith perspective. I try and focus on tangentially, uh, ironically, what is it we can agree on? When you look at the 75, 80 plus guests who, we don't ask their political opinions, but certainly their crucibles, gender, background, race, all very different. 
Yet what unites them is more than what divides them. The path back from your worst day, irrespective of the crucible, is the same. It's not hiding under the covers after your worst day. It's saying, this was awful. What, it was, what was done to me was unconscionable. What I did was terrible. Forgiving yourself, forgiving others, not condoning, obviously, that behavior. We make that clear. Learning the lessons of your crucible, finding something you're passionate about that can make the world a better place helping yourself and others lead a life of significance, which we define as a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. Those mm -hmm. building blocks of how to come back from your worst day, it is the same irrespective of faith, political view, crucible, nationality, gender, race. Those core principles are the same. What that says is what unites us is actually way more than what divides us. If we would only listen to each other and we'd only understand what it means to be human. What is our human desires? Warwick, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Absolutely. When you were growing up, Warwick, what's a song that you loved as a teenager? song I loved as a teenager. I've loved The Seekers. I love ABBA. The Seekers is an Australian band. They've written a lot of stuff. Georgie Girl. I don't know. Hey, that was from a 60s movie. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Seekers fan, folk music. What, what do you do to, what's one of the ways that you've found to really extend the reach of your podcast so that more people can find One of the things we do is have a diverse array of guests, agenda race, background. So we're not just looking to CEOs, but people who want to lead at all levels. You'll find a story there that resonates with you, which I think touching the heart of people so that they see themselves in their stories and that their worst day doesn't have to define them. Every human that we have we know has gone through challenges and trials. We did a survey of maybe it's 6,000 plus folks. I'd say close to 69, 70% of people say they've been through a traumatic experience so devastating it was a crucible. Most people go through challenges, so that we feel like they can identify with that. If you think about the last six months, what's the best $100 or so purchase that you've made? What's one of your favorite $100 or so purchases you've made in the last six months? Best hundred dollar purchase. I got myself probably more than six months ago. Loom Cube Light, which is not that expensive, probably a little bit more than that. But I think simple technology can be good. What's a book that you've given the most in the last year? That's not one of your own. The one that I I refer to most is by. It's all about how Lincoln brought a cabinet together that were his rivals for the Republican nomination. Thought he was a complete idiot, but by the end of his term, they felt like he was the greatest president in history. So anytime you can can unite people who go in thinking you're a moron and an idiot, and by the end they think you're the greatest person that's ever lived, you've done well. That's a big turnaround. I think the trick is making sure you have enough time to convince them as well. Wow. What is your definition of personal success? You say, I am being successful when, and it's just for you, it's not for anyone else. It's really what we talk about, a life of significance, a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. It's my belief that as humans, we're wired not to be narcissistic and to get joy from our own success. Any of your listeners who are human, there's the challenge you have. You might think you can be joyful by just focusing on yourself. If you talk to a psychologist, they'll say that's actually not the case. You cannot be gonna, joyful just in your own personal success. There has to be an altruistic element of it. I'm going to jump in just a moment. I'm letting you know that we have surveyed our listeners and over 98%. And secondly, let me share with you that for you, what do you look at as living your day at the end of a day or at the end of a week? And you look back and say, that really significant 
for me to have made those choices or done those activities? What is What are one or two things that you look at in a concrete way that way? I'd say it's my book, it's the podcast, as I'm speaking to folks and having guests on, when I feel like I can share stories of folks, some are well-known, some are one most people haven't heard of. I'm creating an overused word, perhaps, but a safe place where their message is heard. They can share it in maybe unique ways and offer thoughts to really help people. If I feel like I can share people's stories, including to a degree my own, in which you can help somebody get through their worst days and lead a more worthwhile life as they've defined it, that gives me as much joy as anything I could possibly do. Think of one particular piece of advice or perspective that one of your guests shared in the last three months, and what would that be? There's so much. Probably even further back, one of our earliest folks we had on the podcast was a Navy SEAL, David Charbonneau. He was paralyzed in a Navy training act. I remember saying, gosh, what I went through losing a couple billion dollar family business. It's nothing compared to what you're doing. The best of the best is the Navy SEAL being paralyzed your whole career over. He said, it's not a competition. Your worst day is your worst day. So now most of the folks we have on, I think what they went through, what, you know, is far worse than me, whether it's losing loved ones, abuse survivors, But now I try not to think that way. Your worst day is your worst day. It's not a competition. Yeah, that's wonderful. I often think that I wouldn't trade. There have been tough things that have gone on in my life as well. And I wouldn't trade my life for anyone else's. I'm just so excited about my life, even given all the things that I had to overcome because I look back and it's really made me who I am, overcoming those challenges. Warwick, I want to thank you so much for joining on my quest for the best. You have shared your unique perspective of what it was like to be in the midst of an enormously public challenge and to come through it when you've pleased hardly anyone (laughs) and to come through it with the perspective and strength that you now share with others. I want to thank you for sharing your ideas with us, the inside stories of what it was like during those periods of time, and also what you're doing now to continue to contribute and help others make the most of their crucible experiences. So, Wart, before we say goodbye for now, where can people find out more about you and your work online? The best is uh, through my website, crucibleleadership.com. We're going to link to crucibleleadership.com in the show notes. We're going to link to your book and as well as your social media to make it super easy for people to find out more about you and the work that you're doing. Warwick Fairfax, author of Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. I want to thank you again so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode. Thank you, Bill, so much for having me.